this is Abel here with the SSD podcast, and this is a really cool roundtable discussion, actually part one of a roundtable discussion between Dr. Mike Isretel and Dr. Eric Helms, and we are going to be discussing whether increasing training volume or the number of sets that you're doing week to week is the best method of progressing through a mesocycle. If you're excited for this, then hit that like button right now and subscribe, because next week we are going to be back with the second part of all of this. I hope you enjoyed this. By the way, Mike's audio is not as good as Eric's and mine, but don't hate on him. It's just the case that Eric and I were able to record our audio separately, and that's why we sound a bit more crisp. But otherwise, I think this is a really good podcast episode. So let's get into it right away. All right. So, Mike, I will be turning to you first. So I heard you mention in a couple of places that the idea of whether or not we should be increasing sets week to week as we progress while we can debate it, in your opinion, the idea that we should not be increasing sets week to week needs just as much explanation as the idea that we should be increasing it. So I will try to cover both sides in this discussion. So in a general sense, why do you think we should be increasing sets week to week? Yeah, um, I think that a good reason or situation in which you would do it is one in which you started a mesocycle very close to your minimum effective volume which I can talk about, in, I can justify why I think that's a good idea in many cases to start that low in volume. So I'm a very big proponent of starting with very low volumes. And I think that at some point through the mesocycle, you either run into the mistake of your, you thought your minimum effective volume was, was X, but it's really X minus two sets. And it turns out you didn't make any gains. And also into the, the idea that if you have a mesocycle of a certain planned duration, which oftentimes muscle cycles are, then you don't just want to do a whole mesocycle real close to MEV because then looking back over that mesocycle and saying, I could have gained a little bit more muscle, maybe a lot more muscle if I had progressed into higher volumes, which have been shown to reliably cause more gains. So what I would say is, especially if you have a mesocycle that's of a constrained amount of time, let's say six weeks, if you start at the minimum effective volume, I think you should be uh, adding sets in such a way that hopefully gets you to around your maximum recoverable volume towards the end, and then you deload and repeat, because staying any lower than that would be potentially missing out on some gains, and it's difficult to justify a deload. Not impossible, but difficult if you haven't at least sort of petered out on your gains, which is a very fine way to understand MRV. And lastly, a decent reason to potentially increase sets through a mesocycle is that whatever sets you do start at, and this works real well if they're close to minimum effective volume, may prove to be less than the optimal amount of volume, especially after you're fairly well used to the exercises and repetition ranges and loads. So for example, when you just start a new exercise, which is relatively common to use in a new mesocycle, though not ubiquitous, Eric, that's an inside joke from uh, our last <laughs> podcast. Um, so um, so in any case, uh, you know, you might be in a position where you started hamstring curls and you your first week, you're like, okay, if I do any more than two sets of I won't be able to walk. I won't be able to overload my training further. It'll be a higher injury risk. And also mechanistically, there'll be interference between damage and growth. So I'm just going to start with two sets of leg curls. 
And several weeks in, the leg curls are no longer getting, making you very sore, sore at all, or sore in a way that overlaps with training. And you're looking at it from a theoretical perspective of like, would three sets be more hypertrophic than two sets in theory? They say almost certainly yes. And then why aren't you adding a set if you are capable of adding a set? We know why you didn't add a set to begin with. We know why you didn't start at three because it would have been too much. So something that is too much to start with may not be too much to do later. And then potentially you would add a set because you are able to now do something that is very likely to be more hypertrophic and not in, in uh, get yourself into any recovery problems. So that's how I see it. So all of this is to say that the vast majority of the decisions involved them should come from an auto-regulatory perspective. If you can add sets without interfering, if the addition of sets is better than not addition in theory, then it should be done. Um, if you simply adding sets for the sake of adding sets, that's as smart of an idea as adding load for the sake of adding load. Sometimes it gets you into a place where it mucks up the rest of your training for no good reason. Cool. Uh, just a small comment before we carry on. Eric, did you also hear Mike at times like he's a Robocop or something? No, he sounded pretty clear to me. Did he? Oh, okay. Uh, at certain times I heard him like, as if he's having auto-tune on or something. Well, I did. But... <laughs> I like to sound like a robot. <laughs> Well, cool. Uh, let's hope that the end product is going to come out well then. So, Mike, uh, just two follow-ups actually before I hand it over to Eric. So, let's say that someone has figured out their volume landmarks. And let's say those volume landmarks are from 10 to 20 sets. Let's just use that cliche example. So, if the person is finishes at 20 sets, and let's say that's their actual MRV, so they're experiencing some functional overreaching by that point, at what point within that progression from 10 to 20 sets would you expect the person to be making their best gains? Um, that's a, uh, <laughs> we have a whole chapter in the uh, volume book that we wrote, the How Much Should I Train, that discusses this. It's uh, difficult to sum up. First, you might not be able to tell, and there's two actual questions. Which one gives you your best absolute per weekly gain? And the second question is, which one gives you the best stimulus T issue? Uh, those are two different questions, but... Um, and it, it may depend on the advancement of the athlete, uh, and it may depend on how far between the volume landmarks you really are. The thing I'm definitely willing to say confidently is that the gains made, especially because we're now learning that muscle gains occur over longer timescales than perhaps we suspected. It's a lot more like building a floors of a skyscraper than it is pouring sand into a pile. It's not like I grew three grams of muscle today and tomorrow if I just grow three more, I'll be huge. It's a little bit more complicated and it might take some more time so that you can't really maybe confidently say this week with 20 sets, I grew a little bit less muscle than last week with 18. It might be the total process plus the deload might get you where you need to go. And then we sort of look over the whole course of the mesocycle and say, okay, I grew this much muscle. What I will confidently say is that you probably grow muscle at relatively similar overall rate from the entire 10 all the way up to 20. Uh, what I will also say is that it's probably true that you get slightly better per week gains between 12 and 18. Between those two, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, the, the extent to which functional overreaching causes more hypertrophy than what we'd expect is not very well explored. I'm not prepared to rule out the possibility that something really special, marginally special, happens between 16 and 20 cents, and it gives you a kind of plateau-busting growth that nothing else short of that would. I'm also not prepared to rule out the fact that maybe between 
12 and 16 or 12 and 14 sets really is this amazing growth, especially with a great stimulus to fatigue ratio. So one of the reasons that I'm a big fan of going through most, if not the whole MEV, MRV range is we just really, maybe not we, I don't know where in that range you get the best growth. Um, and I also know that that's a moving number. Last quick comment. If you hypothetically, after moving from sets of 10 to 20, we look back and we do this crazy study where we get fractional synthetic rates every week or every day. We say, okay, you actually did your best growing at 17 sets. That's cool. But if you untrained, unused to the exercises, unused to the volumes, try 17 sets after a deload without easing into it, it might cause predominantly damage and very little growth. You say, okay, I only actually get my best gains from 17 when I ease into it from some lower number. Kind of like you may be learning French the fastest after six weeks of immersion in France, but that doesn't mean that you can somehow go right into six weeks of French without actually going through weeks one, two, three, four, five, and six and struggling. So that's my take on it. I know it's highly complicated, but I suppose that's what your podcast is for. No, absolutely. That was great. And then, um, so my next follow-up would be, I heard you mention in a couple of places that if you start out with your MAV or higher volumes than your minimum effective volume in the initial week or initial one or two weeks after a deload, then you're willingly saying no to those easy gains that you could be cashing in and you're exposing yourself to higher rates of fatigue and more injury risk for no good reason. And from that, I would assume that you propose the idea that those lower volumes and further away from failure training in the initial weeks after a deload are not just less effortful and not just easier to carry out, but they are also disproportionately more stimulative in those early weeks versus what they would be later on in the mesocycle because higher muscle sensitivity, more sensitivity to volume. So it's almost like at that point in time, your MEV minimum effective volume is functioning as if it was your maximum adaptive volume. Is that understanding correct, more or less? More so responsive to it than had you had your last week and several days exposed to a high volume stimulus. Yeah, just ever so marginally more responsive to it. I think that's uh, uh, that's probably pretty likely. Awesome. All right, Mike, thank you. That was great. And then, Eric, I will hand it over to you. And I would love you to elaborate on how you like to set up a mesocycles progression. If you're not using this particular progression method of increasing sets week to week, then what do you like to increase? And then how do you like to set up and manipulate volume over time as you progress through that mesocycle? Um, so yeah, Abel, I think um, what comes to mind is I think both Mike and I like uh, diagnostics things that can give us information. He mentioned autoregulation, and it's very critical, um, I think, to have a system that, that that adapts. You know, you do something, you learn something, and then you change what you're doing <clears throat> to hopefully get, be get, get closer to something that might, might be better. Um, and that's essentially what, uh, what autoregulation or kind of a, a feedback-based approach is. And I think we, uh, whenever we use something to give us feedback, it needs to be some type of proxy that is uh, it, it, as best as we can related to our outcome we're trying to get. Um, so I think 
repetition and load increases are are interesting in the context of a hypertrophy program because uh, they are limited. You can't increase reps or increase load uh, within a fixed progression scheme if you're not stronger. Um, so they provide some element of feedback. You know that what you're trying to do, you can or can't do. Um, and then if you pair that with an RPE value, uh, and if you're good at RPE, which most trained lifters are, and then it's also viewed as a skill and you can get even better at assessing how close you are to failure. And if you also do things like video feedback, have a you know a, an honest workout partner or a coach, um, you can you know not necessarily train to failure uh, and get an idea of whether or not you can add reps at a similar RPE or add load at a, at a given rep RPE combination, et cetera, et cetera, and all the different permutations of that. Uh, and that gets you an idea of what your current performance is. Um, you can add sets uh, at any point, um, so long as you have the time to do it. And that, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. I think there's totally fine uh, progression models and there are useful approaches where you can um, manipulate sets within a mesocycle. Um, but it doesn't have the same diagnostic ability. I think um, adding sets and adding reps and load basically serve different purposes in my mind. When you add reps or load, you're essentially trying to make sure that the relative stimulus of a set is what you want it to be. Uh, when you add sets, that's what I would describe as like a true increase in volume for hypertrophy. If we're talking about meeting all the other uh, guidelines that we know seem to be associated with um, effective hypertrophy training, you know, training somewhere in the six to 30 rep range, um, you know, being an appropriate distance from failure based on the total volume in the session, how many other exercises you want to do for that muscle group, et cetera. And ne- when's the next time you're going to be training and training that muscle group in the microcycle, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, what I'm getting at is that performance on sets, uh, sorry, reps and load is a diagnostic tool uh, that you can use to tell you whether or not uh, you're currently progressing. And to my credit, that's basically what MRV is. Uh, it's telling you uh, in, in the confines of your program, can I uh, maintain my current strength performance or is it going down? Um, and when you've confirmed multiple times that your strength performance is going down, uh, that means, you know, probably there's either too much or too little. Either you're fatigued uh, and you can't maintain that performance um, and that could come from something acute, totally unrelated to your program or something else. Uh, or you have been, you know, just chronically under training and you're slowly getting weaker. Um, I think for the purposes of this podcast, that's going to be less likely. That might be something you might see in like an old school hit program after that initial kind of uh, like uh, prolonged deload experience of a low volume trainee gets if they come off a high volume program and making gains and gains and gains, plateauing and then eventually dipping. Um, but in the context of us trying to figure out what's the 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 optimal volume, um, more often than not, that's going to be either caused from some other factor outside of training or doing too much. Um, so that gives us different diagnostic criteria and abilities. So if we have a given amount of volume that we're using uh, and we can't progress in reps uh, and or load uh, or relative to an RPE, and we also are able to mitigate fatigue and we still aren't progressing, that to me is a nice diagnostic ability to then go, you know what, I should probably add some sets and I should be doing more volume here. Um, the only thing I don't like about adding sets within a mesocycle um, is I don't really expect someone's um, like MEV or MAV to change much within a mesocycle. If we're talking about well-trained lifters who are trying to optimize gains and doing decent volume, this is mostly a discussion for pretty highly trained people. To clarify, I do think MRV changes in a cycle. 
I don't necessarily think things like MV, MEV, and MAV change for a train lifter within a mesocycle. You know, in, in at least in the, in the natural bodybuilding world, you may only make a couple of pounds or a couple of kilo gains in the course of an entire off-season. So I don't think within a four to six-week period, the, the amount of volume you should probably be doing to get optimal gains is going to change week to week. I, I do think uh, other things that you might observe in training could change week to week, like your your workload capacity, uh, your recoverability. Um, you know, you could get with new exercises uh, the repeated bout effect, and you could experience different things in terms of, of soreness. You could get adapted to doing a certain rep range and get less of a pump, and all those things may be unrelated to whether or not uh, you are actually doing a an optimal amount of volume. Um, but if you are training in a given rep range with a relatively static program, uh, and I don't mean that like super static, but of course progression still in mind, and you're seeing gains in, in strength via either reps, load, or uh, you know an RPE going down in a given rep load combination like I mentioned before, um, that's one of the... the it's not the only, it's one of the best relationships we have in train lifters to see changes in strength over time related to hypertrophy, so long as they're not like dipping down and doing fives all of a sudden or something like that. So um, that's kind of the way I see it. And and to be really clear, nothing wrong with adding sets within a mesocycle. Um, I think that's that's something I do for the same reasons that uh, that uh, Dr. Isertel talked about, the importance of training at a, at a low volume at the start of a cycle. Like for example, if someone is attempting higher volumes or they're coming off of a deload or a detraining period or a higher intensity lower volume block I like to taper that volume up with lower RPs and lower loads like an intro week so we can elicit the repeated bout effect so they can handle that that training better not risk injury not train in the presence of fatigue or, or damage um, um, likewise I think deloads uh, are, are, are an important thing depending on, on on your response to training and that's how you deal with that whole doing too much thing. Uh, so, so yeah, I think a lot of the times you'll see anytime there's a change in systemic volume, like the total of number of sets per muscle group, um, there's going to be a tapered in, uh, entrance and exit for that. Um, it, it would be something I would advise depending on what the person's goals are, et cetera, et cetera. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. So, Mike, uh, so Eric mentioned that he does, doesn't necessarily believe that your MEV and MAV are changing variables or, or things that are changing as you progress through a mesocycle. Maybe MRV is changing, MV, so maintenance volume. I don't even know if that's necessarily relevant at this point in time. So what would you think of that or what would be your rebuttal to that? Because obviously, according to your model and the theoretical model that you're using, those things are changing based on the stimulus and how fresh you are, whether you deload it or not. And then what do you think of Eric's method of changing volume reactively based on what happens with your strength progression and your performance in the gym, your ability to add load to the bar and those kinds of things? Oh, uh, yeah, one at a time. Change. So I don't think MV changes meaningfully over the course of the muscle cycle. So we could throw that away. Eric and I both think MRV changes meaningfully. So we're just really down to two. Minimum effective volume and maximum adaptive volume. Minimum effective volume... Um, probably doesn't change a lot during a mesocycle. 
But if you start, the relevant discussion is if you start at what you think your MEV is, I wouldn't recommend training there along because just being up or down one set or two sets from what it really is could mean either getting your minimum effective volume, which is good. You're getting some minimum amount of gain, uh, or it could mean 50-50 chance that you're getting no gains at all. Like you just have not put in enough work to meaningfully change the stimulus from plus from minus to plus. So I think that while it might not itself change, um, I think moving away from it is a good idea. Starting at it is a good idea. Moving away from it is a good idea. Right, because you don't usually want to be flirting with it for too long because of those problems. Another problem is, do you really want minimum gains? Probably not. <laughs> you want to collect all the gains from minimum to maximum, which is why you should start at minimum, but you don't really necessarily want to stay at minimum effective volume. There's, there's a chance, I think, that over the course of a mesocycle, your MEV can move from 10 sets, let's say, to 11 sets. That's possible. And after the deload happens and the fatigue goes away, it goes back to 10. Sure. But if you do 10 every single time and then you deload, you know, whenever it moved to 11, maybe say halfway through the meso or last one third, you just weren't making any more gains, right? Uh, rough. And even if you were making gains, they were minimum, <laughs> which I don't know anyone in many circumstances, at least, that would train for minimum effective volume. So this brings us into maximum adaptive volume. I do think it changes meaningfully throughout the course of a meso. Not by huge swath, but meaningfully. First of all, maximum adaptive volume cannot possibly be, especially with post-deal or especially with a new arrangement of exercises, what it would be in the middle of the meso. It can't possibly be that at the beginning because of the repeated bout effect hasn't kicked in yet. If you tried 15 sets, let's say hypothetically your average meso MAV, if you tried it on week one, you would cause a significant amount of muscle damage and probably interfere with gains, right? So your MAV, I think it's much closer to your MEV at the beginning of a meso. And then as you train more and more, as Eric said, your sort of recovery ability and your work capacity improve, and you get the repeated bout effect in full or incrementally more each week, you sort of open up your ability to train to your quote unquote true MAV. So now functionally your MAV is higher. Not because something magical happened, but because you're finally able to survive the training it would take, not elicit incredible amount of deleterious damage, and actually train like you're supposed to train. So that's pretty sweet. And then lastly, there may be some benefits to training for a short time, uh, maybe in the last week of a mesocycle, uh, last week accumulation of a mesocycle before you deload, there may be a benefit to slightly exceeding what you think your point by point, week by week MEV is just a little. And the reason for that is maybe by doing a little bit extra. Yes, in that very week, if you had repeated, 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 it would be a bad idea. Other end of the U-shaped curve. But because there's a potential for functional overreaching to be occurring with hypertrophy, then maybe there's a slight benefit there. And you might as well sort of end the cycle kind of like with an exclamation mark, go a little bit above what you think your MEV would be because then the MEV net for the accumulation week plus deload week into which you are growing muscle might actually be, say, 20 sets instead of the 18 sets it would be just for that last week taken in isolation. So based on that, I think if your MAV is, let's say, all around 15 sets theoretically, I think at the beginning of the mesocycle, it's really actually around like 12, because if you did 15, the excessive damage would interfere. And then as you pick up speed and pick up pace and get really good at the exercises, get good at exploiting them, 
get damage from them less, so on and so forth, your MEV might start rising into that 15 sort of area. And then towards the end of the mesocycle, you may go to 17. And then the last two weeks, including the deload, might have a realistic MAV, uh, including that deload week of 17 sets or something like that, just as an example. So, so that would kind of be uh, my perspective on that. Cool. So, Eric, uh, what do you think about that? Because obviously we do experience things that speak to that idea to some extent, like, for example when we are slightly detrained for example now when we went back to the gym after lockdown we didn't have proper equipment for a long time for months and then probably you like i did when you went back to the gym movements and set numbers which earlier on you could tolerate no problem and made great gains on were destroying you in quite small amounts in the initial weeks and over time obviously you adapted to it and could tolerate higher volumes and more effortful training. So could there not be something like that after a deload where you're more sensitive to training and you can get more out from less and then the stimulus needs to increase as you get into the mesocycle deeper? Hey guys, just a 20 second interruption. If you're interested in working together with me and having me in your corner as a coach for your fat loss and muscle building goals, you can read up on the services I offer at ablessd.com or you can email me on the address in the show description. That's it. Let's continue with the show. Uh, so I think that, so a couple things to consider here is that the paradigm we're discussing where uh, you, it would be foolish or, or a bad idea to start uh, close to MAV at the beginning of a cycle. Assumes you don't have the benefits of the repeated bout cycle, uh, the repeated bout effect at the beginning. The the example you used, Abel, that makes sense coming off of lockdown, right? So you haven't been able to train. Um, but to find a well-trained lifter who's been lifting for, for years in a situation uh, where they had to start at MEV or they would get a negative effect requires them to have been on an extensive deload or a taper or to have walked their volumes up very, very high and then necessarily had to do an extensive uh, coming down that, that hill. So if you take a cyclical approach to adding sets and you do so in a large degree, Sure, you can create that scenario where then you have to recover from it, uh, and then that itself elicits a little bit of a detraining effect, uh, not in terms of hypertrophy, but in terms of how much volume you can handle and the repeated bout effect, and then you need to start building it back up again. Uh, I think in this example, what you're doing is basically moving your MRV around. Um, I don't think it would have much, if any, impact on MEV and MAV, but I can't say that with confidence because I really don't think it's possible to know what your MEV is or MAV is uh, until you've looked at it for multiple months in a trained lifter, if not longer, just given the time course of adaptations and how much muscle you can grow. So any statement, Mike or I say, in my opinion, about our ability to know what MEV or MAV is for hypertrophy within a, me within a mesocycle is speculative, uh, strongly speculative, in my opinion. So I, I, I don't dispute that uh, if you take a cyclical approach of increasing volume via sets, and you will inevitably have to do a deload, and it may have to be substantial enough that you would then have to start tapering back up from the deload. Uh, obviously, you wouldn't want to go to 20 sets and then go, sweet, I'll deload 20% and go down to 16, which was, you know, probably hard training before. Um, so that, that that's one point. Uh, the other point is on overreaching. I 
I'm certainly open to the possibility uh, that, that overreaching might result in better gains and it might be worth it and, and with no cost of a potential like, you know, injury or burnout or anything like that because of how much more it unlocks or gives you. Um, but we've, we've never studied that. Um, we, we don't have any evidence of, of overreaching for hypertrophy yet. Um, and uh, I, I definitely, we have evidence of, of delayed gains in hypertrophy. Um, but, and, and I do agree with Mike that it is something that is uh, not just as we think of it in terms of like MPS versus MPB. You know, it's not just a, a simple math equation. That's a very, very rough kind of look at the overall outcome. But when you start to look at, say, some of the work by Cody Hahn, uh, who has elucidated all the different components of muscle and how various compartments can change and the disconnects between whole muscle hypertrophy and the different uh, aspects of, of, of muscle growth. And then when you combine that with what we've seen like in Bjornsson 2019, where there was delayed hypertrophy after a layoff from some training, we do get the idea that a muscle growth is a process that is uh, continuous, delayed, um, and dynamic rather than, like Mike said, a good analogy, uh, an incorrect analogy would be like adding sand, which I think some people think of it that way. So um, so yeah, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I think it's important to know we, we, we can't know what MAV or MEV for a train lifter is on the time scale and large manipulations in volume certainly uh, will move MRV around, but the repetitive bout effect will be present in any trained lifter and it will only diminish if they do substantially less, which is only required if you're doing substantially more and you need to recover from it. So it's it's kind of a, uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy if you if you set up your training in such a way that that happens that you need to do that. Um, but I, I would uh, question the premise that you you need to have such large deviations in uh, in set volume to to then therefore have that outcome. Cool, uh, Eric. So just to follow up. So let's say you're coaching someone, an intermediate lifter, and you found out through trial and error that the person's best kind of sweet spot for training volume is at 15 sets. So if you set up a four to six or four to eight week long mesocycle for that person, how would you do that in terms of volume? You mentioned that you do intro weeks, which are kind of similar to what Mike is doing with the starting of the mesocycle at MEV, minimum effective volume. So how would you taper up the volume from that intro week to that 15 set mark? And then would you do that at the beginning of every mesocycle after a deload or just the beginning of the whole training program that you're starting with the person? Great question. So I think um, I'll try to be brief here because the, the times I use intro week are varied and they probably occur a little more often when I'm working with a power lifter uh, or a strength athlete who would have hypertrophy blocks, um, which are great for as a long-term investment in, in strength, but not the way they should be training all the time and getting ready for doing that or moving from that to intensity blocks. Uh, you kind of have to taper the ends of those things because they're pretty different stimuli and uh, you can get maladapted, not maladapted. You can get unaccustomed to one work and be counterproductive. But for, let's say I'm, I'm training a bodybuilder, exclusively a bodybuilder, most of the time it's in the six plus rep range, six to 20, let's say 90% of the time they're training. Um, and, you know, like you said, for, through trial and error, we find a given volume seems to be ideal. To get to that point of finding out that that given volume is ideal, it probably means I explored um, 
lower and potentially higher volumes. And each time I'm going to explore a new level of volume, I don't do it just by going, hey, you know, if we look at the entire microcycle, we've got a total of 10 sets per week for your, your, your quads. We're going to try 11 next week. We're just going to add one to the leg extensions you on day three. What I'm probably going to do is make a a reasonably, but but maybe not a quite aggressive increase in volume. I might go from like 10 that we just tried the last mesocycle. Let's try 14 and see how you handle that. Um, and I will do things like collect a session RPE uh, and compare that, what I expect them to be experiencing, what they actually experience, and then watch their post-set RPE change, look at their loads and look at their reps, and then also collect some data at the end of that mesocycle to get an idea of overall what was their recovery from it in a more subjective sense, in addition to those objective recovery like MRV is a, as a descriptor for. And then I look at that overall uh, and, and I get an idea of, okay, did we start to make strength gains at a, at a more rapid pace? Or maybe we, in, we made strength gains and before we didn't, but it also came at the cost of you being uh, more beat up and, and us seeing a more, uh, a more clear accumulation of fatigue, let's say a week to week to week. Uh, and that's typically the pattern I observe. I'll give them something that is probably close to what uh, Mike would call MEV for a mesocycle, and we'll be going along, going along with, you know, we're, I don't know, is it just maintenance? Are we making slight gains? Very difficult to tell. Um, but we're slowly moving up the needle on a few exercises here and here, here and there. Uh, and if I suspect that, you know what, you're not feeling too beat up, we're, we're taking these deloads every like third mesocycle because maybe we feel like we should just to be safe. That's probably an indication that we're kind of hanging around too low a volume. So I might use an intro week in that case to get them up to 14. I'm not just going to go straight from 10 to 14. That next mesocycle uh, might have a, a, an intro week period uh, as we go into it. So let's say we, we took two or three mesocycles of training around 10-ish on average sets. And at the end, we deloaded um, just to be safe. Um, if I want to get to 14 from that deload from 10, the deload might be around six to eight sets. You know, I'm not going to go from six to eight in one week to 14 in the next. So that might look like 10, 12, 14, 14, and we'll hang around 14 until we start to uh, really get beat up. RPEs start to go up without load or, or reps going up. They start to mention some subjective things, aches and pains, etc. And that's when we'll throw in a deload. So that, that probably helps you explain how I got there. And, and likewise, if I was to overshoot, uh, try out a mesocycle, and man, they immediately got beat up, um, pro progress went, went halted, you know, uh, and maybe I was just hoping for too much, which I still think is worth doing every once in a while, because, you know, maybe you are just making less than uh, or subpar gains. Uh, that's when you, you would do a deload, and then that would go into the next uh, next volume. So you kind of have to taper it down the other way, so or a lower volume, to be clear. So I think uh, that probably would explain what I'm doing. It's very similar to what Mike is describing. It's just more kind of bridging uh, mesocycles rather than uh, bridging microcycles within mesocycles. Awesome. So, Mike, I heard you elaborate on this on a couple of different platforms that you are not necessarily a fan of dictating every decision that we make over our volume amounts when we increase it or decrease it solely based on what happens with our training loads and rep increases in the gym. So basically performance. And Eric kind of just outlined how he likes to make decisions about increases or decreases in your set volume number based on what happens with your performance. So your ability 
ability to progress loads or reps. So if you have an objection against that, I would love you to elaborate on that. And then maybe you could also mention what other metrics you would use to decide whether or not you should be changing how much volume you're doing. Sure. So I think the problem that comes to mind for me, if I try to think about this and do it, is that what we're examining in the gym with performance is a metric known as preparedness. And preparedness is the sum or the difference of fitness and fatigue. Your fitness is 10 and your fatigue is 2. You're going to be able to display 8 units of preparedness, which is performance. If your fatigue is 12, <laughs> or so if you're, you know, if your fatigue is 8, and your uh, underlying fitness is 10, you're only going to display two units of performance. So uh, in, in both cases, the fitness was the same. It's the fatigue that was different. So when we're looking at this variable of preparedness, which is performance measured at any one time, we have a variable that's necessarily uh, opaque to gains in fitness because we don't know what part of our performance comes from fitness and from fatigue. We also know, based on a pretty decent summary of the literature, that you can get similar repetition strength gains from a variety of volumes, and all of those volumes can be plotted on a U-shaped curve. So there are volumes you can get stronger from that cause very little hypertrophy, but they cause so little fatigue that almost all of the underlying hypertrophy and other fitness characteristics, neural abilities, endurance, so on and so forth, shine through very clearly. So week to week to week, your preparedness is improving or at least staying the same. Then if we move up to higher volume still, we can see a very similar preparedness. So, you know, you're still, let's say, gaining only, just as an example, five pounds of strength, right? 200 you did for 10 last time, 205 for 10 this time, 215 for 10 and so on and so forth. Just like you did with the very low volume condition. But this time the fatigue is rising much more quickly because the extra volume that you're doing magnifies fatigue significantly, literally contributes to it. But if your fatigue is much higher, but your preparedness gains are the same, the underlying fitness gains must be higher. And thus you are potentially putting on significantly more muscle. You can't do that for as long because fatigue will eventually stop you. So you have to deload at some point to get rid of the fatigue. But after deloading it at some point, let's say we take two mesocycles of the same length, just as a thought experiment. Both are six weeks of accumulation, one week of deload. We take those two mesocycles. There is a range of volumes training for hypertrophy, which create very similar preparedness increases or preparedness dynamics over the course of those accumulation weeks. But the ones with higher volumes, maybe intermediate volumes, are the ones that are actually growing the most muscle, but also accumulating the most fatigue. And of course, there will be still higher volumes at which preparedness starts to fall because the fitness gains aren't worth the fatigue trade-off. The fatigue is exponentially higher. Or, you know, the fitness gains are objectively even lower. It doesn't matter. There's no making up, right? But we definitely can speculate that there's this range of maybe five, maybe six sets, who knows, right, of different in volume, where the same preparedness over the same time scales results in two different underlying fitness characteristic expression. One grows a little bit more muscle, the other grows a little bit more, a little bit more as you scale volume up. So if we take those mesocycles and we take week seven to deload from both, at the end of both, the fatigue will fundamentally be close to 
zero, right? If we deal with it properly, there's no more accumulated fatigue. We're ready to do another muscle cycle. But now we can look back on how much total muscle we've gained. And we realize that on the exact same performance increases within accumulation, some of the volume strategies, the higher volumes, resulted in more underlying muscle gain. So if we're using week-to-week -week performance gains as metrics of the appropriateness of volume, we're in a very good spot for making sure we don't do too little volume, in most cases, because they just won't be getting stronger. Um, we're in a very good spot to prevent us from doing too much volume because that's excessive MRV, fatigue skyrockets, and your, your MRV is literally defined as preparedness begins to fall. So like if we're getting weaker, it's over and it's too much, too much. But to a certain point, if you have the same two levels of preparedness, uh, on average, your preparedness gains, both lifters gain five pounds per week at whatever RPE, and one of the lifters does more volume, and for that reason accumulates more fatigue and eventually has to deload sooner, the other lifter, if he deloads at the same time, he doesn't benefit from nearly as much hypertrophy. Now, this example is artificial because you can simply extend the lifter who's not going as hard. You can extend his mesocycle longer, his accumulation phase longer, so that he doesn't have to arbitrarily deload when he's still making great gain. And you can say, look, he's making great gains for longer without having deload. And then the discussion becomes more complicated because you talk about fitness fatigue paradigms, uh, or sorry, uh, accumulation to deload paradigms. Is, is an eight to one really that much more economical than a four to one? Um, um, and you also come to realize that your MRV comes down either way to meet you, uh, unless you're willing to stop a mesocycle while your preparedness is still rising or stable in the presence of high fatigue, you're going to have to be deloading before uh, MRV tells you, uh, or uh, and that's going to be kind of like, why are we doing that? Like your athlete's clearly making gains, you're like, all right, time to shut it down. It's, it's a possibility, uh, it's one that's a little bit uphill fan. So in the context of just a similar length mesocycle, it becomes very difficult to tell apart uh, what part of the, uh, where, you know, what preparedness is telling us about hypertrophy? Because for two uh, different volumes, one of which causes more hypertrophy than the other, the preparedness over the course of the accumulation phase can be the same because you get more fitness and fatigue out of that paradigm. The other one, you get less fitness and fatigue and the preparedness ends up being similar between both. Um, this is well exemplified just to pick an example in the Radielli studies, Schoenfeld study for the multiple volume tiers where, you know, the group that did 45 sets or whatever insane shit per week, they didn't actually get any stronger than the group that did like uh, almost half of that, but they got significantly more muscular. And that, that effect is really seen very well between the two, the bottom, the two bottom groups, the bottom group and the middle group. So when we're using, my concern is this, when you're using preparedness as a metric of fitness, the fatigue element there seems to be modeling the picture, and what that's why I think that maybe the finding your MRV most mesos is a good idea, because if you are still either one of two ways, it's the same effect, either continuing the accumulation phase, doing more weeks of training, or within the context of a single length accumulation phase is predetermined, if you're elevating volume, you at the very least find out when you're no longer making preparedness gains, and you can be assured that doing more than that is a stupid idea and you have to deload. I think that if you're making very good gains in preparedness, at a certain volume, you can't be too sure that multiplying that volume by some amount won't cause even better gains because preparedness is unequipped to detect that. Gotcha. So uh, would a uh, pretty ugly TLDR or, well, I guess TLDL <laughs> in this case be that if you're able to match your performance and your ability to increase loads at higher volumes, then you should be opting for that 
Because otherwise, if you're keeping your volume amount at a lower point while making really good strength gains in the gym, then you could be optimizing your training towards strength gains and not so much towards muscle gains. Totally, because strength is what we're measuring in this case, right? And it is very possible that you can do an entire mesocycle of training and especially if you don't deload when you hit MRV, that's the real big problem. If you just say, I'm deloading after six weeks, you're into the problem of looking back on the last five weeks and saying, like, I did really great, but you could have potentially gained more muscle if you did more um, with exactly the same preparedness outcomes. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, Eric, so uh, I think the message was pretty clear here. So what do you think about this? I think it's an excellent point uh, that when you look at you can, you, the, like the, the standard when you start manipulating volume, uh, when you look at groups doing different volumes, is that the strength gains are probably going to be similar, um, and you will either see the same or greater hypertrophy as you increase volume. That's kind of overall what we see. Um, and that is very important here. That's a group-based comparison. Um, when we, what, what Mike is talking about is, hey, like, if we take that and we extrapolate it to an individual, you run two mesocycles, one is higher volume, one is lower volume, uh, will your strength gains be reflective of, of hypertrophy? And based on those group-based outcomes, we would expect they wouldn't, that you might grow more uh, in either case. Um, or, 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 or greater in the one despite not actually gaining more strength. The real, the real way that we need to answer that question, though, and there's only limited data on this, is actually looking at a plot of the change scores in strength and the plot in the change scores in hypertrophy, not the group-based comparisons. And we have a little bit of that, um, but but it's not it's not robust. So I'm not going to be like you know like I'm dunking a, a basketball here or anything like that. So for example, uh, Crib et al. 2007 they plotted changes in type one, two A, and two X fibers along with changes in squat strength in tr pretty pretty well trained lifters, and they saw correlations between like 0.8 to 0.85 in the change score. So when you start to then take that group and you distribute them to different volume uh, amounts, like the absolute changes in these people uh, can be can be pretty vast. So when you're looking at changes within an individual and how that relates to their score, it may be better. I don't know. There's not enough research on that. But I think it's important to remember when we talk about fitness and fatigue as well. Um, that like, like Mike said, if you do low volume, your MRV comes down to meet you. That means that you're getting poorer at recovery because you're not doing enough to challenge your recuperative status, meaning that your ability to recuperate, your ability to handle the volumes changes. So it's not simply that when you compare low to say moderate to high volume within a person that you're going to have this linear increase in fatigue. There will be an increase in fatigue, but it may or may not be linear. And your gains may also be increasing, which may be reflected in strength. And whether or not that is shown as a similar strength outcome within an individual, less the same or maintaining it, um, it's, it's not as just as clear cut as, hey, you increase volume, and if you're making the same strength gains, that's better uh, because fatigue is higher. Fatigue might be higher, but you also might be handling that fatigue just fine. Um, at a certain point, of course, you, you can't adapt to like, I mean, it's pretty crazy what CrossFitters can do, but there is a point when you would probably expect to see fatigue uh, overriding uh, your ability to gauge your strength. But the point is that can only last very long. Uh, if you do a deload or if you run multiple mesocycles, if your strength isn't going up at a certain point, you can be sure you're not doing enough. Or if your strength has been suppressed and you feel terrible for a long period and you're not doing deloads, you just keep increasing volume and you're expecting 
expecting volume to lead to muscle growth to lead to strength strength gain, and I want to see that, then you know you're in the presence of fatigue. So I think some of my concern is that if you're trying to do this within mesocycle and you're making guesses that you don't know exactly where, where, where these things are adapting and in what direction. And it may take multiple mesocycles of experimenting with a certain volume before you can be sure. Um, but if you're changing that volume within mesocycle, do you know when you're either short or past it? Uh, and are you chasing this, this these fatigue dynamics that you're creating uh, by making the cyclical process rather than actually following something uh, that while may take longer to gauge uh, is, is more closely tied to actual outcomes? So I think that that's that's something to consider. Um, I I'm not going to put like a definitive. Like I said, I'm not I'm not spiking the soccer ball in the goalie end zone here because there's not a lot of data on individual change in the relationship and strength and hypertrophy. But it is different uh, than when you sift people into groups, and I think that's important. Yeah, uh, Eric, is what you're talking about here kind of along the lines of that downward phase on the that inverted U for volume and hypertrophy where you're basically making the same gains but with more volume because now you're just handling it really well because of the repeated bout effect and whatnot but your gains are actually not better you're making the same gains as what you were doing with less volume but you can't yet tell that you're in that downward phase because you didn't yet compromise your performance from that edit fatigue because you're just handling it better yeah exactly and then um so i think i think when so given that you know the, the question is is like are fitness and fatigue dynamics dynamics predictable and they're at least in other sports, they're not. Like if you look at uh, like Borison 2011, it's a review where they looked at the, the whole concept of the, the fitness and fatigue model. And could you use that math? Could we use certain metrics to predict fatigue and then plot and predict performance outcomes? And no one's been able to do that at least for, for performance. Hypertrophy, I think, is even more opaque. Um, you can definitely plot fitness and fatigue post hoc. You can look backwards and say, oh, well, if this is algebra. You know, I, I know the performance we got and I know the volume we did, therefore it must have caused X amount of fatigue. But when you try to do it prospectively, no one's been able to predict it yet um, because we don't know how adaptable you become, how well can you handle those increases in volume. And then how does that inter interact with all of the, you know, all the other aspects that, are, that affect fitness and fatigue, all the, all the reasons we argue for, for autoregulation, the, uh, the biopsychosocial model, if you will, the backdrop of all the other stuff that goes on, whether that was um, your emotional stress or other things that we may not be aware of, like a subcl subclinical uh, nutrient deficiency or, or whatever. Um, all the stuff that, that creates a solid argument for autoregulation is happening on top of that. So I think you need longer time courses to, to tease these things out. Um, and I think you have to make sure um, that the, 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 the items you're using to autoregulate and the time courses you're using are appropriate given what we can can't know. And I really just don't think we can know what MEV and MAV are within a mesocycle. Um, so that's something to consider as far as what does that imply for, for how you should be changing uh, the variables that are supposed to result in those outcomes. Cool. So Mike, if we still have a little bit of time for you to respond to this, um, yeah, what would you think of all of this? So you you have to deload anyway, even if you don't cycle volume, because you just deload less often, but fatigue still accumulates. In folks that are trying to get their optimum adaptations, fatigue on average accumulates over the weeks and eventually becomes so high to prevent further overloading. 
nobody can continue to train productively unimpeded forever. And within several months, that comes to an end. In uh, the way that I tend to recommend programming, which is to start at a roughly three RIR in hypertrophy and slowly add a rep here and a little bit of load there to result in RIR zero, uh, that accumulated fatigue is very predictable in the sense that, yeah, some weeks are better than others than you would expect, even though they come later. On average, every at least two weeks, your fatigue is higher than it was. So we can be fairly certain that fatigue does accumulate during training. Um, Eric was, I think, absolutely correct in pointing out that it's very difficult to measure exactly how much fatigue that was. I'm going to try to sort of back calculate fitness gains versus preparedness. After the meso, I think that's a fool's errand. I agree. But we don't need to do that because after the meso is over, we have deloaded. Our fatigue is back to baseline levels. Whatever our performance is in week one of the next meso gives us a very robust indication of how much fitness we've gained because fatigue has been essentially muted no matter what you did, unless you need more than a week, which I don't know what the hell you did in that case. So to that end, ultimately mesocycle to mesocycle progress determines is the gold standard, okay? Um, are you getting stronger for reps? Meso to meso to meso to meso to meso. So my gold standard would be three, just as an example, a three mesocycle training block followed by two weeks of active rest at least. And then you assess performance in the next training block. That gives you a real good insight as to what you gained in the last training block. Three mesos in a row. So each one is six weeks, two weeks of active rest. That's 20 weeks. I think after 20 weeks of data in, uh, and then fatigue is equated because it's after active rest, which essentially gets pretty much all fatigue barring injury, then you could really see what you gained. And here's kind of the cool part. If you follow the sort of Eric Helms, let's keep volumes a little bit more stable in a mesocycle approach, you will have an average volume per mesocycle and thus average block volume and be able to say, okay, this average volume gave me these gains. If you follow the Mike Isretel shit, then you have a mobile volume throughout each accumulation phase, but that's still an average. You can still get an average figure. Like if Eric just stays at 15 the whole time and I stay between 10 and 20, we literally have the same average volume. And then we have the same really good data at the end of the whole block to show what the gains were. Uh, then... As now that there's much more insight, I think a really cool thing more advanced lifters can do, whether they use Eric's approach of more stability within the mesocycle, within accumulation phase, or my approach of a little bit more dynamism, what they can start to do is try to play with average block volumes a little bit. So if you know where your volume landmarks are, that's really important because you don't want to exit them, right? Like the worst thing to, I think, both Eric and I is if someone pretty fairly knows that they can't recover from repeated exposures of 20 sets of legs a week, like if Eric and I were sitting in the same seminar and someone was like, what do you think, given that my MRV is 20, that I should try a, a block of 30 sets of quads? We'd be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> How do you think that's going to work? Right? So you should have a general understanding of at least where your MEV roughly is and at least where your MRV roughly is. And whether or not you cycle between them, I think even with cycling or without cycling, you can start to say, okay, this last block in an average of 15. This next block, let's say we're cycling it. Like, I'm going to try for an average of 13 and see how it goes. And then you might do the whole block and be like, you know, the whole entire block, I didn't really feel challenged. And after the block, my gains were very unimpressive, hypertrophy-wise. Like, uh, I guess maybe that was wrong. And then maybe you do the next block at 15, and you find that your results were, again, pretty good. Notice, it doesn't matter if you cycle or not. It's still the same process. And then you say, oh, it was actually better at 15, so now you have, like, three data points. 15 was good, 13 was bad, 15 was good. 
good. Now, maybe it was a shitty block. Like you had a divorce going on the entire block, which is how long divorces go, I guess. There's no, no punchline mm-hmm. there. But like then you kind of know, you know, but it's very rare that you're going to have a bad mood every day of the block. A block's a really good chunk of time. And on average, your bad luck lasts a certain number of weeks, really good luck, another, and it cancels out. But then another mesocycle, or sorry, another block later, you can try an average of 70. And, and this is per each muscle group, by the way, with a lot of other variables held constant. And that way you can explore maybe where between your MED and MRV, there tends to be uh, a biasing that favors you most. And I think that's the gold standard of figuring out what your responsiveness to volume is. Able from, I don't know your story very well, but from when you've told me before, you used to train with a ton of volume and okay, it works, but not that great. And then you just dropped your average volumes from extended period and got like way better gains. So, but like that's the real gold standard. And whether or not you manipulate volume within an accumulation phase is considerably secondary to that. And Eric, if I've misrepresented your views or if you don't agree with what I just said, please uh, let me know. And that is the end of part one. Next week, we are back with part two. Folks, stay tuned. All right, guys, thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And once again, if based on what you've heard from me, if you've been following my work for a while, you would be interested in working together with me, having me as a coach and someone who would guide you through to achieve your muscle building and fat loss goals, then you can read up on my services at ablessd.com. You can email me at the address that is linked in the show description and if you just enjoy listening to these episodes then i would really appreciate you dropping a five-star rating on the sustainable self-development podcast on itunes that will be actually beneficial for everybody because i will be able to get more high quality guests on the podcast and that will be fun for you it will be fun for me so please do this a little bit of favor for me so that would be pretty much it thank you for hanging around up until now and we will hear each other in the next episode